Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things, and action is the best antidote for anxiety. Today, we say yay. Yes, we said it loud and proud in solidarity with students in Florida and all over the country. Plus, we dive into some shocking news about a D.C. conservative power couple. It won't surprise you what they've done, but it's still pretty outrageous. And joining us for today's interview is former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. He's got ideas for how we talk to voters who may not always agree with us and how we take back the mantle of patriotism. All of that, plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We Win. Win. How are you this week, Mariah? I am well. It's it's hard to say that you're well when the state of things mm-hmm. are so, um, uh, you know, awful and in flux. And I just, you know, every day my heart breaks more and more over what's going on. But there's positive stuff happening too. We're going to talk about some of that. And 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 I look forward to this every day, every week every Tuesday, every week, because (laughs) we get marching orders and that always makes me feel a little bit better about things. So every podcast day, I'm feeling, feeling pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Yeah. I agree with what you just said. And also I'll say I'm excited about, uh, I'm excited for people to hear Deval Patrick's interview Mm -hmm. um, because it was kind of what we needed it was it was very inspiring and and had a a good dose of hope um also taking in the gravity of where we are at the moment too uh so uh, this is this is really the the perfect timing for for this right now this you know we need some deval patrick right now so we're getting it in the interview today yeah i think that's important to be able to hold concern and hope at the same time mm. um and and have the the two kind of motivating each other so um yeah i'm I'm excited for people to hear this one too uh but first we want to talk about a couple of of again we're gonna start with some challenging news out of Florida that also mm. comes with some some hope as well. That's a phrase you are hearing way too often, challenging news out of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> when you, nowadays, when you say Florida man, you're talking about either Ron DeSantis or Rick Scott. Florida man's done something awful. Yeah. It's um, just one of the two of them. But we're, we're super inspired, and, and I know everyone's been tracking the passage in the Florida legislature of the Don't Say Gay bill. Um, mm-hmm. We are really inspired by all of the students um, in Florida and around the country who have walked out of class last week in solidarity after the Florida legislature passed that bill. This bill bans public school districts from teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, or, quote, in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students, language that critics, and that's us uh, and everyone listening, say could extend the ban to higher grade levels. 
uh, Florida man state rep Joe Harding, a Republican who <laughs> introduced the bill, told Time magazine in February that the bill's intention is to keep parents in the know and involved on what's going on with their child's education. But of course, uh, critics argue that the bill is discriminatory. It obviously is, and an attempt by Republican lawmakers to stir political support amid a broader climate of increasing Mm -hmm. polarization of LGBTQ rights and heightened scrutiny of what children are taught in schools. This is the Republican playbook of finding a culture war issue that is hateful and divisive and and double downing on it at at the expense of so many people's lives and freedom it's it's shocking it, it, i i still look at this and think this is 2020 fucking 2 and we're dealing with a bill saying don't say gay it's I don't even have the language for it. I, I was going to say atrocious, and that seemed too Mary Poppins and not strong enough. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's just—it's uh, deplorable. It's—it's um, it's insane. Oh man, it's deplorable. It's sinister. And when you think about what gay youth struggle with yeah. and um, how the deck is stacked against them, um, being able to talk about these things in school is important. But also just knowing that your school district isn't against you and that what like who you are is too dirty to even talk about in school, the harm that that's going to do to these kids. It doesn't change anything about them. All it does is hurt them. And it is exactly what you were saying. It's just the it's straight out of the Republican playbook. Let's scare. Let's scare as many parents as we can and tell them that. These other people are trying to take away their rights as parents and indoctrinate their children and turn their children gay. And that's not at all what what's going on. But, you know, it's it's just cynical and disgusting. It is. It's shocking. But again, what I really and I know you really want to highlight are these students who are standing up. And um, uh, there is one student in Florida named Jack Petos who is. organized a protest at their school and was suspended. I'm going to tell you a story that is so frustrating that this is, is it's been happening for ages. And just for me personally, I faced disciplinary action in high school for sharing LGBTQ propaganda. Wow. Like I I wrote for quote-unquote propaganda. I wrote for a local newspaper that was totally teen-run. This is what I was spending my teenage years doing is is, is playing a journalist. I was a journalist. Love it. Um, And we, I remember we put out this issue that the title was Slaying the Homophobia Dragon. And one of our, our fellow journalists had done this beautiful illustration on the cover and um, my school didn't want to to hand them out um, because they were afraid that parents would think that they were encouraging students to be gay. And I um, was this I in, was this them, in Georgia? This was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I handed them out anyway and uh, got many hours of detention. And let me tell you what my parents thought about that. Not a whole lot. 
they marched down to that school <laughs> and had some words. They were not going to allow some sort of detention to be on my record um, mm. for, you know, something that didn't need detention anyway. Absolutely. So disciplining, you know, students for their language is, of course, something that um, goes goes back many years before the, the many years ago that not I was that in high many school. years ago, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as somebody who experienced a smidgen of that, it just is so heartbreaking to to see it continuing to happen. And uh, it's heartbreaking, and yet uh, the kids continue to be heroic and standing up for uh, for each other's rights for their own future. And it inspires me to no end. Keep at it everybody keep at it make your voice loud uh this cannot stand not in this country not in this world um we have fought too long and too hard to go backwards on lgbtq rights the other news that we wanted to talk about was this story about jenny thomas wife of supreme e. court Ooh. justice clarence thomas what yeah, no, I'm just cringing at this story because I mean, it's everything so predictable that comes out about awful. her is so cringy. So it, we find out she admits the New York Times had asked her about this last month and she, no comment, but she admitted to the Washington Free Beacon, which is a conservative newspaper based in D.C., that she did attend the January 6, 2021 rally at the Ellipse in D.C., um, she did not go to the Capitol, but she was there at the beginning. Um, and I think people suspected that she was involved in the rally and she didn't mm -hmm. confirm it until um, this week. Um, other things that she has done since she was secretly at the rally, she publicly pushed back against the congressional investigation into January 6th. Uh, she co-signed a letter last year calling for House Republicans to expel Liz Cheney and Adam Kensinger from the Republican conference for joining the congressional committee investigating the insurrection on the Capitol. And then here's a fun fact. Hmm. She's on the board of something called CNP Action, which is a conservative group that helped advance the Stop the Steal movement, which of course tried to overturn the results of the legal election that we had and keep Trump installed in office. Now, um, CNP- Also, they're also a big grifter organization uh, designed to put lots of money in Trump and his peeps' pockets on this as well. Absolutely. But they also are part of this coalition of conservatives, um, and they are sort of leaders in that space. And the New York Times and, and, and New York Times investigation found that in November of 2020, so right after the election, before there was even time to investigate anything, this organization that Tom Thomas mm. is on the board of circulated a call to action to in, influential conservatives to put pressure on Republican lawmakers to challenge the election results and appoint an alternate slate of electors. And the New York Times reporters say, such a plan, if carried out successfully, would have almost certainly landed before the Supreme Court and her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas. And maybe, maybe if you're gener if you're if you're a generous person listener, 
maybe you're saying, well, a husband and a wife aren't the same person. They have their own opinions. No, they've admitted before that they're in lockstep with their with their ideologies. I feel like our <laughs> listeners are getting less and less generous every week. <laughs> yeah, we should not be generous with this. I mean, it's like they've they've always said that they have the same conservative agenda. Thomas clearly has a conservative and and finally after years of being on the Supreme Court, thanks to Donald Trump, the court is moved in his favor. And mm-hmm. so this is the moment that the Tom in history that the Thomases have been preparing for for 30, 40 years. That's right. They you you kind of teased out in our opening that they're a power couple. They have been for a long, long time. And Jenny Thomas has been very active in conservative circles and um very. And in issues that would come before the courts and would mm-hmm. come before her husband. Um, so there's real legitimate conflict of interest there. As you said, it's not just two people who have their separate lives and ideologies. Um, there are some who are calling for a investigation into this and um, some kind of action against Justice Thomas. Very, very difficult to um, remove a Supreme Court justice. But what we can do, if we can get rid of the filibuster, which also we can't do because of Mansion and Cinema, we could expand the court. So there's hope, but there's no hope. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. All the more reason <laughs> for us to go ahead and get uh, Katanji Brown Jackson confirmed. Hells yeah. Uh, yes. And um, <sighs> this this Supreme Court... We can expand the court. I mean, that's not without precedent. We've actually changed the size. I'm sure our listeners know this, but we've changed the makeup of the court uh, a number of times in history uh, with more justices or less justices. And um, so um, we can add justices to the bench, expand the court, and uh, we should. Um, But uh, again, it would take um, a filibuster proof majority or eliminating the filibuster in order to do that so um if we couldn't couldn't uh, get that done for voting rights then um unlikely for this issue as well but all the more reason to to work hard for the midterms that's right that's the lesson there let's talk about your hero of the week My hero of the week is actually oh, a Russian. Bear with me. I love that. Um, so I'm going to butcher her name. I apologize. Marina Avzyanikova is a Russian journalist who protested on the air, on live TV, on the country's most popular TV channel. She walked behind the anchor and held up a sign that said, no war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they are lying to you here. And as we know, Russian citizens have not been getting the full picture of what uh, the Russian military is doing in Ukraine. Some of them aren't even aware that there is a war going on because news has been so locked down there, internet access has been limited in some places. So uh, Marina Avsyanikova, I mean, the number of people who've been arrested on the street for protesting the war in Russia, high. So to do it on TV, Mm -hmm. that must have been terrifying. She was arrested. Of course, there were concerns because no one heard from her overnight. 
um, after she was arrested, but she appeared in court hours ago with a human rights lawyer and received a fine for her actions. So um, she is our hero of the week for bravely bringing to the Russian people information that they are not getting from their state-run TV and news uh, outlets. So brave. And I'm glad you highlighted her story because I think about the Russians who are out there protesting um, Mm -hmm. all the time because, you know, I mean, you and I and and our listeners, we've all uh, gone out on the streets to protest things here in the U.S. uh, where our voices need to be heard. And it's very important to do that collective action. But the consequence for people doing that in Russia is so severe. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be imprisoned for up to 15 years for even calling it a war or an invasion mm-hmm. for using mm-hmm. that language. And as you said, uh, I mean, countless. We don't know how many people have been arrested. Um, there's such a lockdown on information within Russia right now. It's incredible. So so when you see someone like this, uh, I believe she was an editor who worked there at the mm-hmm. news station. What a, a great personal risk that she had to do that. I think a lot of people probably saw the sign on the live broadcast and it's gotten a lot of international attention, which is probably what saved her from uh, at least right now, worse consequences of that is the amount of yeah. international attention she's had. But so brave, and um, this is Putin's war. Uh, there's a, a a lot of you know really wonderful people in Russia who are protesting it. There's a lot of people who are just uh, don't know the facts, who have been insulated from it, and and trust the information coming out of the Kremlin. So uh, it's a it's a tragedy everywhere. It is. Um... That's our hero of the week. And now um, you're going to tell us how we can all be heroes and take some action. This week's to-do list, we're going to hear so much more about this organization from our guest, Governor Patrick, but it's to go to bridgetogether.org and consider signing up and getting involved with this organization. I'll give you the bullet points really quickly. Uh, As I said, Governor Patrick will talk more about it, but they are investing in and working with groups that already exist in these uh, communities, Mm -hmm. organizations that have been on the ground working all year round. They're not trying to... so important. Yeah, exactly. They're not trying to reinvent anything. They're not trying to usurp someone. They're coming in there and and bringing support to these organizations um, that are building democracy in their communities. So... um, Check them out. Once again, it's bridgetogether.org. We'll have that link in our show notes, as we always do. So that's your to-do list. Coming up now is our interview with Governor Patrick. Uh, It's a great one, but please do stick around for our reasons to hope. Uh, I have a a really important story to share, which gives me a lot of hope um, about a Ukrainian family who has made it out of uh, just outside of Kiev. So stick around for that. Deval Patrick is the former governor of Massachusetts, a civil rights attorney and an author. He's currently the co-chair of American Bridge 21st Century and the host of the Being American podcast. 
he's also a beekeeper. If we have time, I'm going to ask for more information about that. Uh, we probably won't have the time, but <laughs> but I just had to throw that in there after I saw it on your. I'm on your glad you did. <laughs> you did, Governor Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mariah. I appreciate it. Uh, our listeners are, I'm sure, very familiar with your history making background. You were the first black governor of Massachusetts, only the second black governor in U.S. history. But we want to start before the, the history making stuff. I want you to think back to your first experience in activism or campaigns and mm. tell us what you remember. Wow. That is a very, very interesting question and a, and a hard one uh, because they're so far back at this point in my life to think. <laughs> Not that uh, far, come on. But I, you know what, I, 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 grew up, uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s. And like you know, most of the families um, in that place at that time, we were, you know, we were struggling to get by and, and, um, and uh, were of I would describe us as of limited means but limitless hope hmm. because there was still a very strong sense of community in the sense that you know you were under the jurisdiction of every adult on the block and uh, so you messed up down the street in front of Ms. Jones she'd go upside your head as if you were hers <laughs> and, then, and then she'd call home so you get it two times mm -hmm. and I think what those adults were about was trying to under to, to teach us that Membership in a community is understanding you have a stake in your neighbor's dreams and struggles as well as your own. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about the fact that, you know, my grandparents with whom I lived were refugees from the Jim Crow South, had finished the third grade. My mother dropped out of, out of uh, high school to have my older sister eventually went back and got her GED. And I was the first one in my family to to go to college, nobody told me in the family or in the neighborhood that was out of reach for me. Mm. You know, it was very much about this is what we expect of you. So to your question, I remember vaguely going with my mother and my sister to um, a rally in the park when Martin Luther King came through. And I was probably seven or eight years old, maybe. Mm. And you know what, guys, I can't remember a single thing he said, <laughs> but I remember what it felt like. Mm. And I, I, re I remember how um, it felt like something was happening, that it was about all of us and about people who weren't there, too. And it was uh, about our seeing in ourselves that we had a claim to make on our own American citizenship and expectation of us and that we had the power to make it. And I think as, I, as you've asked, asked the question and I've thought about how to answer it, that may be my first experience um, in a political um, kind of setting and, and maybe the, the most lasting and maybe most meaningful um, takeaway from it. Pretty powerful first experience mm -hmm. to have. Not bad, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, from your first experience to one of your most recent and uh, and very large experiences uh, running for president, you, of course, ran for president in 2020. Uh, I got to hear you give a great speech at the California Democratic 
Party Convention. Oh man! In huh. Long Beach, which now seems like an eternity ago. That was the when we could actually get together and and do a convention and <laughs> and do that. Um, what was it? Lord, like? soon, <laughs> soon, soon. Yeah, yes. yeah. I think so. I think soon. But um, what was it like to uh, run for president? What was that experience like? And um, keeping in mind all of the enormous challenges that Biden is facing right now. Mm -hmm. Do you wish you had that job? <laughs> Steve. Well, so first of all, it's nice of you to mention my my uh, my campaign. It only lasted 15 minutes so that you bring it up at all. <laughs> um, I was a reluctant candidate um, for president and a late one. Um, I was I had thought hard about it and in fact planned for it. Uh, more than a year before and about two weeks before we were ready to step out um, after a lot of soul searching and um, but then a lot of preparation, uh, my wife was diagnosed with uh, with uterine cancer and it had made no sense. Mm. Um, I mean, at, we didn't know at that time that it was very early. She is cancer free today. Uh, thank God um, was dealt with by um, uh, by surgery and a little bit of radiation, just amazing mm. healthcare that we have uh, access to. Um, but it's not like I always wanted to be president the same way I, I didn't always want to be governor, which was the very first thing I'd ever run for. Um, mm. it, was a, it was a sense of what I could contribute at a moment when, despite the fact that it was a big field full of a lot of people I really liked, Mm. Um, and and some of whom were friends, that we were we were potentially missing something. And Steve, if you don't mind, if I can just describe um, please, what I please. what I think we were missing. You yeah. know, there there's a what you hear a lot today, and I think quite rightly about the the economic insecurity and social isolation and despair, as measured by things like addiction rates or, or um, suicide rates and, and frustration um, with politics in the sense that those issues become issues at election time and then disappear in between election time. You hear a lot mm -hmm. about how white working class, class people are feeling this, folks in rural communities are feeling this. And I'm thinking to myself, that's what black folks in my old neighborhood have been feeling for generations. Yeah. Right. And and instead of seeing that as an opportunity for us to unite around solutions, it felt to me, and sometimes still feels to me, like we keep doing the same thing. We keep campaigning around sound bites and slogans and short termism, rather than engaging people in a in a more grassroots and intimate way, mm -hmm. permanently, um, and listening for their voice in telling us how to shape our, our, our policies and our agenda. And I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat because, I mean, I'm not the sort of Democrat who thinks you have to hate Republicans to be a good get Democrat. I want to be clear about that, mm -hmm. but I, I'm a Democrat because I think it's the only party that's actually interested in how to make the American dream real for everybody everywhere, whether you vote Democrat or not. Um, or whether you never vote at all and don't identify with the party. And, and so it seems to me we haven't had that kind of broad-based alignment of the, around the challenges in a long time. Mm. But we, it didn't feel to me like we were having, like it felt like we were being kind of baited into the, you know, Trump is bad, 
Republicans are bad. The reason to vote is because they are bad. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. I felt a lot of that. Not wrong, yeah, um, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I feel like it's it's um it's like and then what happens after the election? Right. Right? You know, we've we have what what is on the other side of that of that victory? I happen to think that in many many ways uh, president Biden is exactly the president we need right now. I support him. I think he's done some um, uh, some fabulous things. Um, and I think, you know, one or two things that I wish he hadn't done um, uh, or hadn't done the way he'd done, particularly the, the, with, the way we withdrew, not the decision to withdraw, but the way we withdrew from Afghanistan. But um, mm -hmm. there's a lot to like about the, about the policy direction. And, um, and there's always going to be something to be frustrated about. I am just not one of those Democrats who think you only get one year to do it, mm -hmm. and that uh, mm. and that we shut down if it all doesn't get done um, in the first year or the first hundred days. Would you? So would you, you see, I've avoided the question about whether I'd like to be president. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> well, then my the natural you made some follow great up points. is: Would you run again? I don't really see. For me, first of all, I have a. I, we don't have term limits in Massachusetts. Um, I have a term limit named Diane, uh, <laughs> whom I have I have known for forty years and and been married to for thirty seven of those forty years. And mm. and um, I think if I were to say to you or anybody else publicly, or frankly to her privately, <laughs> that I was thinking about running again, it would be the end of that. Uh, Come that on, day. we really want to break some news on this <laughs> yeah, podcast no, no. today. No, I don't. I don't have any news to break. I'm not <laughs> honestly, Steve. I'm not being coy. I think it's a the the it's a brutal, brutal thing. Absolutely. Ugh, yeah. Right. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. But we've. It's become it that. Yeah. It is. Um, and and practically speaking, it's it it's it's hard on on a family, and. Um, uh, I had a brilliant but reluctant first lady in my wife. She was really, in fact, and she, you know, she's managed depression for much of her adult life. Mm. And she got sick in the first few months of my time of being in, uh, in offices uh, as governor, because you know, it was all the inbound and all that stuff. We did great, but tough um, campaign. And then we were trying to meet all these high expectations we had, we had set. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember sitting with her, um, in the in the worst of uh, of that, and I said to her, "You know, you're proud I won, but you were hoping I would lose." And she said, "How did you know?" <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think no, and I, I also think there are a lot of other people in line ahead of me who probably have a closer uh, finger on the on the pulse. But I, I I do hope we get to talk about how to get our finger on the on the pulse because I think that's something that we as as democrats have not been doing very well well yeah let's talk um, about that right now i mean you're you're the co-chair of american bridge 21st century um tell us about the work that's happening there so um american bridge is a is a so-called super PAC, the sort of thing that i hope one day is against the law right because <laughs> um, i i just i think the amount of money in politics today um is it's it's embarrassing when you think about how many other unmet needs there are. Oh yeah, right. Uh, and how much of it is uh, is about just tearing down the other side or the other uh, or another candidate in order to lift us up. And I, I just think that's it's part of what makes this process so so brutal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I got involved with American Bridge because after my um, very short campaign, um, the the then really kind of the skeletal Biden campaign asked if I would help in this way. Mm-hmm. And uh, what American Bridge was doing that was different from um, so many others was uh, investing and had for a long time in local communities, some 80 counties in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, where folks had voted once or twice for Obama, and then in 2016 for Trump. And rather than shame people for voting for Trump, they engaged, they talked with people, they, they, they got them to tell their own stories about what that was about, how they were feeling about that vote. And um, person after person would speak direct to camera in their own words, you know, on a one of those, you know, smartphone cameras and so on, in their own words about how they were feeling long before we had a nominee. Um, and, and they were creating what uh, what some of the experts described as a permission structure, right? It was, mm. they were rethinking right out loud in real time, a year before the election, their own political engagement and their own political choices. And eventually, Many of them were willing to vote for a Democrat. Eventually, once we had a, not, a nominee, they said, I'd, I'd vote for, uh, for Joe Biden. And, um, and it made it okay for their neighbors and friends to start thinking, maybe I should change the way I think about this too. That margin in those places made all the difference in some key states. And it mm-hmm. was so freaking respectful <laughs> you know, this whole notion that we don't have to just talk to the people who already agree with us. We got to show up and engage people who um, who don't. And, and I agreed to stay on because um, I wanted American Bridge to turn its attention to investing in permanent year round grassroots organizing through. And we created something through Bridge Together. And that's how I'm spending um, my political time these days. So what does, um, what is Bridge Together doing? And is, it, is there an opportunity for people to get involved with it? Yeah. So Bridge Together, which you can find at bridgetogether.org, um, is a C3. So it's a not-for-profit. And we support existing local grassroots organizing groups in a handful of key states. Mm-hmm. I'd like one day to be able to say we support them in every state. Um, But we're starting in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, We're expanding as we raise into Nevada. And we're we're looking to support existing groups. So we're not sending in new people, but existing groups who are organizing, doing relational organizing in their neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and communities with their friends to reach marginalized voters. And they can be um, all sorts of folks. You know, they can be black and brown voters, voters, uh, on tribal lands, they can be rural voters, they can be a lot of the voters we find ourselves connecting with are women uh, who are uh, frankly interested in building community all the time. And mm. it's about building relationships of trust well before it's time to mobilize um, around, uh, around politics. And understanding that, you know, folks, they have power, they have a lot to teach us about what our, as I said earlier, what our agenda ought to be um, and how to talk about it and how to stay engaged and, and responsive to uh, the people we seek to, um, to serve. I think it's the long-term answer to better politics mm. and a stronger democracy. Um, 
and I certainly think it's the it's the medium term solution to uh, to building democratic power. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. And it goes to what you were talking about earlier that was missing really from a lot of campaigns and from our politics in general. It's this, um, you know, transactional organizing that that campaigns do where they just drop in and say, vote for me and we're going to do this and that. And then they leave and they don't invest in the actual community. And I could not agree more like building up the community organizers who are there 24-7, you know, all year round is, is, is how we build a stronger democracy. Well, and Steve, if I, if I may, I, I, think, I think, you know, I, I, and I, f- I feel I can say this because I was, I was sort of slow to learn this lesson. If all of these jobs as a candidate or an elected, uh, elected official have always been some balance of substance and performance art. <laughs> True. The, the thing that has taken over is the performance art part. Mm. The substance is secondary. The more out there you can be, the more sensational you are, the more attention you get. And that seems to be what drives a lot of politics right now. No wonder so many people from both parties feel disaffected, um, feel like it's, it, the whole thing's not about them. And, you know, we, we're, we focus a lot on, uh, on registration roles and voting roles, and I understand that. We focus not nearly enough on the folks who don't participate at all mm. because they don't think it uh, it matters. So, you know, I, I I just think there's a whole lot to like about um, building a sustained and sustainable participatory democracy around values. If you actually engage with people at that level and you listen as much as you talk. Absolutely. It's a great point. And um, it's been going on for a long time, the performative aspect, especially of presidential campaigns. I mean, we can Ooh, we can look back on uh, you, the the previous Democratic um, governor of Massachusetts, uh, Dukakis, who had a lot of great substance and would have been a great president. And uh, one picture of him in a tank uh, kind of derailed a, a lot of that narrative, you know, um, so... That, yeah. that that's we could go down that wormhole and talking about optics and all that BS, but I, I don't want to. I want to talk about protecting and saving democracy, which is something mm. that that you talk a lot about, and especially when we're looking at what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of an obvious question, but do you see that as a threat to our democracy? Does an attack on one democracy threaten others? I do. I think, um, first of all, I believe in the power of example. And I think um, just as we have examples outside the United States of um, bully style leaders and, and a lack of decorum as entertainment, you know, sort of reality TV sort of behavior, we saw that in other parts of the world before we saw it here uh, at home. And I think um, the notion that uh, a um, an independent democracy can be overrun by a uh, an authoritarian bully, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and that the world would just look on. It hasn't, but um, but that that could that could happen. Uh, it had the world responded with indifference. I think it would be a terrible a terrible thing. Oh, yeah. And I think in some ways it sharpens the urgency of some of what we're dealing with right here at home that the you know the what culminated with the January 6 right. um, attack on the Capitol 
was a whole lot of behavior for a long time before Donald Trump mm-hmm. um, that, that treated our democracy as if it was a thing that could tolerate limitless abuse without breaking. Mm. We, we haven't started with uh, voting uh, suppression just since the last little while when states have been passing, 19 states and counting have passed these measures to make it harder to register or stay registered or, or, or to cast the vote and have the vote um, uh, counted. It's just amped up. You know, a hyperpartisan gerrymandering was going on for some while and has continued to, you know, has gotten, has gotten worse. The Voting Rights Act has been under attack since its uh, passage 50 years uh, ago. Just finally gotten a, a Supreme Court that, you know, was driving that uh, agenda instead, instead of standing up against it. And frankly, Citizens United and the amount of money. Right. Um, is a part of so much about engineering outcomes instead of letting elections be a contest of ideas. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think we are. This is a five alarm fire. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't I don't want to raise unnecessary alarm. But having having said that, I just make one last point and then I really will stop talking and let you ask questions. No, <laughs> but we there's a lot of there's a lot of really good energy that has come from activists, has come from the business community, for that matter, around um, opposing these efforts to make voting more difficult. And that's important and has to continue. But we also need efforts to make voting more meaningful. Hmm. And that's the, this is my point about engagement again. Why does it matter? How not to make it abstract? And that happens, I think, by getting close to people, staying involved with local people in local communities, right back to this idea of a, of a permanent grassroots infrastructure. I think that that's so important to think about and talk about and look for ways to do as we're going into the, the midterms, which um, I know people are, it feels far away, but, but we need to be it's fired not, up about yeah. that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you about um, this TED Talk that I really encourage people to find online that you Oh, gave. you're killing me. It's not my best. It's not <laughs> <What>? my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, don't, we don't have to direct people to it. We don't have to talk about it. The link will be in our <laughs> show notes and we'll retweet it. No. <laughs> but no, I, I, the, it's called a, a Different Understanding of American Patriotism. And um, I just I want I wanted you to talk a little bit about what patriotism looks like to you. Yeah. So when I said it's not my best, I mean, you know, you have to memorize it to do a TED talk. And I don't memorize very well. So <laughs> I was it, it wasn't my best performance. You don't get a substance, you don't get a prompter or anything. No, I it's it's, it's outrageous. Come um, on. I know. Um, <laughs> the. But the subject matter is something I've been thinking about for a long time because I, I think I think patriotism has been um, it's been kind of co-opted by one end of the political uh, spectrum and corrupted. I, I, I don't think is um, is too too harsh a term because it's not it's not about as I say in the talk you know flyovers and lapel pins and arguments about pro ball players taking a knee mm-hmm. during the national anthem. It, it is, there is a civic faith and the genius of these, of the founding um, 
for all of the flaws of the founders was that unlike any other nation in human history, we organized around a handful of civic ideals. You know, it wasn't geography, it wasn't language, uh, you know, it wasn't religion, um, it wasn't even race. It was these principles that were radical at the time, right around equality and opportunity and fair play or what was called um, due process. That's why, that's what's enduring. It's why we've been a magnet to the aspirations of people from all over the world, including enslaved people who overheard those comments and saw in them um, the hypocrisy and irony, but also the possibility Hmm. Uh, of one day having a place. And I, I think if you think about patriotism that way, which for black people in particular is always tricky, right? right? Um, you love a country that doesn't always love you back. Um, but if you think about patriotism that way, for me, it belongs to um, all of us. It's a call to all of us. And it's a... Um, it helps frame why we ought to care about some of the civic choices that are in front of us. Mm. You know, what is, what is enabling of those uh, ideals and people's ability to benefit from them and partake uh, of them and what is in the way. And when you get right down to that, it makes some of the choices we face, I think a lot clearer and it draws in Folks, you know, in this way I talked about earlier in community, that we all have a stake in each other in that respect. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's very aspirational and, and hopeful. Uh, we want to wind up this interview with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that's what gives you the most hope for the future right now? You know, um, I hated... Uh, the pandemic, like everybody else, for the reasons everyone uh, everyone did, but it had a kind of a strange um, mixed blessing, I think, because it made it harder to turn away from some of those truths we were talking about earlier. That a lot of the time we we just blow right past. Mm -hmm. mm. That that some of us were able to, you know, hole up in comfortable places with what we needed um, for ourselves and our families and that we were able to do that because somebody else got up and drove the trucks and stocked the shelves and 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 people the ways in which we think of so-called essential workers as essential now mm. but we don't we don't treat them that way the rest of the time we hardly see them the rest of the time and in the midst of all that to see all these people from all these different communities and in all these different communities show up in the streets streets overwhelmingly peacefully in the wake of that videotape of George Floyd's uh, murder and stay in the streets in a country with a you know famously short attention span mm. mm -hmm. was incredibly encouraging to me and it's it was uncomfortable and um, and frustrating and still is that we haven't met the moment um, or more of the moment yet, but it's encouraging to me that um, so many people are beginning to understand what so many of us have experienced. And so I'm not just talking about 
police excesses. I'm talking about the ways in which the American dream I've had to live, I've had the chance to live, is vanishing for more and more people mm-hmm. and are focused on that in new and fresh ways. That's really encouraging. Now, here's the caveat. Mm-hmm. As I think um, better than anybody, Anand Girdadas uh, put it, it's great so many people are woke today. The question today is whether the woke will leave room for the still waking. Mm. Mm. Are we going to bring everybody with us or are we just going to move on? And I think that's, that's one of the most profound challenges of our time. Wow. Well, Governor Patrick, thank you so much for, um, I would say it's an inspiring conversation, but we have some work to do and you've, you've given us some pathways to do it. So I appreciate, I appreciate you. That. Thank you, Mariah. Really <laughs> important conversation. We didn't leave yeah. room for the bees, but um, that's okay. Maybe another Next time. time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. You be well. All right, Mariah, um, what is your reason for hope today? For my reason for hope, I would like to read a short quote that my husband shared with me that this week, I was having a rough week and mm. and my husband read me this quote. And so I guess my husband's my reason for hope. Um, but But this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote is what sealed the deal. Um, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of the intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the beauty in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that one life has breathed easier because you lived here. This is to have succeeded. Wow. I love that. I needed to hear it this week. And I hope that it helps somebody else out there. Um, Tell us about your reason for hope this week. Thank you for that. That's actually segues perfectly into my reason for hope. It comes from the Ukraine and one family's journey to get out of the Ukraine. And if I had to add another hero of the week for this week, it would be my own brother-in-law, Bob Malley, giving Mm -hmm. him a shout out. A uh, Ukrainian uh, woman, mother, worked for him and for his company. And uh, and when the war broke out, he reached out to her to try to make sure she was okay. Didn't hear from her for a long time, couldn't get through to her. Finally got through to her and... um, she was trying to escape. She lived just outside of Kiev with her 20-year-old daughter, her niece, who was 12, and her 76-year-old mother. One of the over 3 million people who have, who have now left. And uh, what really gives me hope was, um, was what happened next. Bob started reaching out to uh, people as simple as putting out a Facebook post, like, does anyone know someone in this town or outside the border in um, Bucharest or whatever, they could do it. And, and he reached out to some of his colleagues at the company who had worked with her, and they were able to organize um, some help for them. 
and uh, some people who were on the ground there helping people get out. They were able to connect them there. They, uh, it was a very fluid situation, very dangerous, as, as you know. One thing that I learned through this thread that was just so awful is um, they were advised to stay close together and not separate because there are bad actors who are um, taking advantage of the refugee crisis to traffic humans, especially mm. women and young girls. Um, so uh, they mm. have safely made it out of the Ukraine, uh, are being put up in hotels, which are letting them stay there for free. Mm. And strangers are then picking them up and moving them on to another location. Mm. And, um, you know, they've left behind their homes, their their country, uh, everything that they know. They've left behind her husband, who has stayed there to fight it's heartbreaking, but so inspiring to see what one person can do when they reach mm-hmm. out to their network to try to to try to help. And wow. um, and you know, again, this is one family story out of three million, but it, it's just um, you know, we talk a lot about on this show what difference you can make with your network mm-hmm. uh, if you just reach out, if you just you know. Take a, take a step out of your comfort zone and start doing it. And that's what Bob did. He's like, there must be something that we can do. He put it out to his network. I believe the company that uh, she used to work for is now doing the same thing uh, with their contacts there and reaching out to more people. And it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of become a larger thing because of this. So in the depths of this very inhuman and, uh, and horrible time, in all of our lives, in in our history, seeing the humanity and um, and the the generosity of people along the way gives me hope. Mm, wow, what an incredible story! Um, thank you to that, and my goodness, thank you to your brother-in-law for for you know being persistent and starting something. Um, and yeah, this is what. You know, we we often lament like what has happened with social media, but then you hear about moments like this and realize like the power of us all being connected easily and freely is Mm. is so remarkable. I wish the best for them. And thank you for sharing um, a little bit of, of what's happening there. I think that, you know, we can all imagine what a nightmare it must be to try to be leaving with your family right now. But um, um, the real details are, are so important for people to hear uh, and, and they're horrifying. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. We really appreciate you being here with us. We'll be back with some more next Wednesday. MSW.